on today's episode of the Digging In Podcast. We continue in the book of Mark. Another episode of the Digging In Podcast Lessons From series. I hope you have been enjoying it. And here's today's host, Finn Foster. Man, I uh, hope that that wasn't too annoying because uh, it was annoying for me to do it. But I, uh, I needed a new way to do an intro because I usually just yell at you guys. And so I'm going to keep, uh, you know, just kind of trying out some real dumb ones to keep your attention going. So uh, just in case you were expecting me to yell and bust your speakers open in your ears or in your car, uh, I didn't do that this time, I hope. But hey, welcome back, man, to another episode of the Digging In Podcast Lessons From series. We are continuing on in the book of Mark. And we are looking at the next section today, which is sections six through 10, sorry, chapters six through 10, section two of the book of Mark. Uh, This section is uh, honestly, it's a bunch of healings. There's, there's some teachings uh, in there as well. Uh, There's a really epic moment in, in Mark nine that we're going to talk about just for a brief moment. Uh, But ultimately chapters six through 10 are going to look a lot like uh, Matthew. So the chronology is going to start mixing up a little bit. There's going to be some events that are happening now a little bit out of order. That was happening a little bit in chapter four and five, but now it's going to really start happening. So stuff that in Matthew was set in this one order is now being mixed up a little bit in the book of Mark. I'm not going to go into all the details of which ones are mixed up and where they're mixed up, but there is some stuff that is uh, out of order from the book of Matthew, whether or not that that is actually out of order in chronology is up for debate. So some people would say that the book of Mark has the accurate chronology and that some of the other books will follow it or mix things up. But chronology isn't really an issue for me. And and what I mean by that is for the most part, Jesus's ministry, isn't it really about when he did something? It's about what he did and why he did it. Um, and that is, of course, until until we get to the exact fact that his birth was basically predicted all the way back in the book of Daniel. The, his birth was predicted almost like to the day, like a few days difference, um, which is wild. And then his death and what happens after his death is also predicted as well. But everything that kind of happens during his time of ministry uh, isn't so much about when, uh, but really what it's about is the where, uh, the what, where, why and um, even the how really uh, but the the uh, when is kind of left out of the picture for his uh, timeline of ministry at least in my brain and so uh, we're in the book of Mark and so we're looking at the fact that this is a, another one of the synoptic gospels this is another excellent sto- group of stories based on the uh, life and and ministry work and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And um, that being said, the, the book of Mark is a different perspective than the book of Matthew, because as God gave the Holy Spirit to empower these human authors to give them the perfect and exact word of God, he did not take away their personality so that they would turn into robots, but rather what he did was he allowed the Holy Spirit to influence them to make sure they were writing the correct and accurate thing 
things, uh, but that they would be able to put their own emphasis on it. So that's why each of these four synoptic gospels shares so many stories uh, and so much information, uh, but at the same time seems to have a different kind of lens. So super awesome stuff. And, and, and Mark is written so fast and furious, uh, but his main focus is on Jesus, the, the healing and suffering servant. And so we're going to see a little bit more of that healing work and his personal work today um, and how his healing ministry helps to prove that he is the suffering servant Messiah King. So uh, let's go ahead and grab our Bible, our pen and our paper, and let's dig in. God, thank you so much for the opportunity today to come to you and read your scriptures. God, thank you for giving us the book of Mark, which in its own way provides us with a very new and fresh perspective of who Jesus is. God, I pray that these stories would not uh, just become some sort of memory device where we remember exactly all the things that Jesus did, or um, I pray that this wouldn't, uh, you know, not affect our hearts, I guess is maybe the best way to put it. I pray that this would affect our hearts. God, I pray that these, these, these stories, these personal accounts of, of what Jesus did in the lives of real life human beings actually would affect us, that it would change us to see how amazing you are and how wonderful your love for this rebellious people uh, is. God, I just, I just thank you so much that your story from Genesis to Revelation is one complete story. And that sometimes when we look back in the Old Testament, we think that Israel is this, um, this young and infant nation of, of cavemen. And that when we turn to the New Testament, that the, somehow they're more evolved and they're more, they're just much smarter and, and more wise. And, but in reality, God, it's the same people. <laughs> it's just the same people. So God, I pray that you would remind us of the relevance of the New Testament and the Old Testament, but specifically today that you would open up our eyes, ears, and hearts to see, hear, and know, and love you more through your scriptures. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, guys, uh, chapter six through 10, that's your reading today. So why don't you guys go ahead and pick up your Bibles. Um, and if you need to remind yourself of some of yesterday's uh, kind of stuff, you can go back and, and look through there, focusing on that chapter five, where he really, where Jesus really hones in on the personal nature of what he's trying to do. Um, and then I want you guys to go ahead and read chapter six through 10, and then join me back for some discussion. Awesome. So I, I'm sure that you guys started to see some of that chronology getting switched up and changed um, just based on where Matthew was at. So some of the stuff is maybe in or out of order, depending on how you how you view it. But again, the when is really not important to us. It's the uh, it's the what and the why and the how that are a little bit more essential for us to figure out. So uh, we see a whole bunch of stuff here. If you guys had a chance to look through it, um, you see some more miracles. Well, you see the people getting sent out, uh, John the Baptist dying, feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. Uh, we see an emphasis on traditions and commandments right there at the beginning of chapter seven. And right before that, Jesus walked on the water um, with Peter. And there's a, you know, a really neat um, story there. And uh, um, sorry, not with Peter, but um, Jesus walking on the water. Uh, and then in chapter seven, uh, you have these traditions and commandments section where Isaiah twenty nine thirteen is mentioned again, uh, and, and just kind of the emphasis on the fact that Jesus is doing something amazing that has been spoken about since times gone by. So pretty wild. Uh, and then we see 
the, the outward ministry of Jesus as he, in chapter 7, uh, 24 through 30, we see him traveling to a faraway land just to speak to this one woman. Um, and, and he talks about her faith and teaches her a little bit. Uh, and then we see Jesus feeding the 4,000 in chapter 8, uh, talking to the Pharisees and, and explaining to the Pharisees a few things, healing some people. Peter confesses Jesus as Christ. Uh, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. And then we turn to chapter 9, where we get that crazy weird story of the transfiguration. If you guys remember uh, in the book of Matthew, we also had this same exact story where Peter, James, and John are allowed to go up with Jesus onto um, the mountain. And as they are on this mountain, they, uh, they go up there and they see Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. And some of the stuff starts to make sense. And they're like, wait a second, this is the answer from Malachi that Elijah was supposed to come. Um, and ultimately, it says this in verse 12. And he said to them, yes, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how it is written that the son of man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah already has come and they did whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So um, ultimately, what we're here reading in this exact moment is this story of uh, Jesus explaining that he is this servant, son of man's servant, who's going to suffer many things. And so he's just told, foretold his death a few minutes ago, and then they go and see that this stuff is all true. They don't really get it just yet, but it's starting to maybe move a little bit for him. And then we get another healing story in 9, 14 through 29, where God, um, through the Holy Spirit, through Mark, is spending more time again on the descriptions of an impossible circumstance in which Jesus steps into. And it's just, it's a really awesome, again, another really awesome healing story. Um, and it's just, it makes, makes me happy just to read something so awesome. So then we, uh, after this healing and this amazing personal healing, uh, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection once again. And then uh, we move into these uh, more, some more teachings of Jesus talking about uh, being like kids, having childlike faith. And then we see him teaching about divorce right there at the beginning of chapter 10. Um, and then we see him talking about kids again interesting. Talks about kings again. Let me get the story of the young rich man. And then Jesus foretells his death and resurrection a third time. And then uh, James and John step on the scene. And um, we're going to start right there. We're going to read, um, we're going to read 10, 35 through 45. And uh, then we're going to finish with one more healing. And then that's going to be where we end today. It's going to be a shorter, a shorter day today, I hope. But again, I want to focus on exactly what we're doing here uh, in the book of Mark, which is that we are looking at the, the emphasis of the author to figure out what this author is trying to say, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, what this author is trying to say about Jesus, why it's a little bit different from the book of Matthew and why that is important. So why don't you guys stop real quick. If you guys didn't read, because again, you thought maybe you were better than the Bible reading, or you thought maybe that, well, Finn describes it anyway, so I don't really need to read, then I want you to at least be honest with yourself and say, okay, yep, that's me. And then I want you to read 35 through 45. That's right. 10 whole verses, chapter 10, 35 through 45. At least just read those verses for me and then join me back for our final discussion.
Now that is uh, one strange story, is it not? Man, you, you're sitting here thinking, man, what it would be like to be one of the disciples. Sure, they're confused at times and they don't get everything, but they're human beings. They're talking to God. I mean, it's confusing, right? Well, at least they're just pretty good guys. Well, uh, let this be this, the, the tale here that James and John, um, the sons of Zebedee, you know, they're, they come from a fairly rich background. Um, their father had servants and slaves who worked on the boat and they fished with them. So big boat, bunch of uh, slaves who worked in the boat. They're, they're from a rich family and they're having a sibling rivalry right here in front of Jesus. And they said, we want you to do for us everything we ask. And Jesus is like, oh boy, <laughs> what could you possibly want me to do for you? And they basically just go in to say, we want to be proven that one of us is better than the other one. So just like any other brothers would do, am I right? I mean, like any other brother would look at them and say, yeah, I'm the favorite son or, oh, I'm better at you than this or whatever, right? And so they're doing that same thing here. But what's happening is that they are forsaking the other 10 disciples because they're saying, well, we already know that we're better than, than Peter. And we already know that we're better than the other nine disciples outside of just Peter. And so which one of us is the better out of the two of us? And then this causes, of course, all of the disciples to be like, dude, what? What are you guys talking about? And amidst all of this talk of the greatness and amidst all this talk of who's the best disciple and who's the, who's the most loved disciple by Jesus, Jesus comes out with a fireball of a statement. I mean, an absolute fireball that sends all those dudes back in. So what I want you to read with me is in, uh, starting in 42, you know, that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it. They lord the fact that they are the rulers over all the Gentiles and their great ones exercise authority over them. So those who are kings and rulers over the Gentiles, let all the Gentiles know, Hey, we're in charge of you guys and we're going to exercise our authority over you. Right? So he's just saying, this is how ruling works. This is how rulers work, but it shall not be so among you. So in other words, the way that you will rule, the way that you will come to power and be the greatest, it's going to be the exact opposite that everyone else does. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So, uh, some of you guys were like, yeah, I've, I've read this before. Some of you guys say, yeah, I get the concept, but I want to break this down to make it really understood here. Jesus is setting up the upside down kingdom that we talked about in Matthew. He's saying that the way that we will rule, the way that my kingdom is established and the way that anyone who falls under my kingdom will come to any sort of greatness is not by ruling over people is not by demanding over people or exercising your authority over people, but by being a servant to the people. So in other words, you see the word servant and slave here. Uh, Those have a lot of weight and context to us today, but I want to challenge you to not read your 2021 context into the situation. When you hear the word slave, do not think of the African slaves. Uh, When you read the word servant, don't think of a butler who stands at the door and opens the door. Don't read your context into the situation. Instead, let the Bible's context come to you and understand. So slave and servant come from uh, these terms that meant people who were in voluntary duty to lay down themselves for the service and appreciation and work to another person. So 
In other words, in order to be great, you must be underneath someone to lay yourself down to give them and serve them in any possible way. And this is a challenging view because servants, slaves, anyone of this kind of stature is considered one of the lowest positions in society. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be the ruler over all people, quote unquote, if you want to be the highest authority in the land, quote unquote, (laughs) then you need to be underneath everyone. So this is that upside down kingdom. It makes no sense. But what Jesus then says is even the son of man, the son of man, me, came not to be served, but to serve others. So I came here with the sole purpose of serving others. And then he lets us know how exactly he's going to serve. What is this really specific way that he's going to serve us? We, we immediately think of uh, how he washes the disciples' feet. Or maybe we think of the way that he heals and loves other people. But what he's saying is that the ultimate moment of service is going to be when he gives his life as a ransom for many. Think about that word ransom, right? We are held hostage to something. If you think about those action movies where someone is, you know, there's a, there's a ransom amount. There's a money to be given. It says, we have your daughter and we will give you you need to give us $3 million in this offshore bank account and we'll give you your daughter back, right? That's the ransom, right? We were held hostage by something and we would be traded for with some sort of monetary value. So we were traded for in some way. So what Jesus is saying in this moment is he's going to give his own life as the payment for what we were enslaved to. And he's going to do it for many people. So what are we enslaved to right here, right now, 2021, there are shackles for some of you. There are shackles around your wrist and around your ankles. Some of you even have that one around your waist that connects you to another person. And both of you are enslaved or enslaved to that, or, or maybe hundreds of people are enslaved to that same thing. And you all walk in a line enslaved to something. We all do. Every last one of us is enslaved to something. But what Jesus did in giving himself up for us was that he freed us from those chains. So if there are any chains, we're putting them on ourselves. We're enslaving ourselves to these things. And what Jesus is the ransom for is the slavery to sin and death. That Jesus freed us from those things. And so right here in in Mark 10, 45, what's being said is the, one of the most central ideas of the entire book of Mark is that Jesus is the servant to all of us. And he serves us, not just by bringing us food or washing our feet. He serves us by dying for us. That the thing that we were held hostage by sin and death, he frees us from by his life being the payment for it. This is a weird concept, but I hope you are seeing it. There was a transaction made and his, the transaction, the payment was not monetary. It wasn't silver and gold. It was his life that his blood paid for our sin. We were hostage to it. We were enslaved to it. And sometimes we're enslaved to it on a day-to-day basis. Even today, We put those chains right back on because we're enslaved to other people's views of us. We're enslaved to uh, getting likes on our posts and how that makes us feel because it makes us feel loved. It makes us feel worthwhile because we're searching for love and worth in a broken world. 
You know, some of us are enslaved to uh, sexual desires, to doing things with people of the opposite sex or same sex that we know darn well we shouldn't be doing. The fact of the matter is we are all enslaved to something. Some of us, multiple things. If you're like me, it feels like multiple things. Whether it be lying and cheating, stealing, uh, drinking excessively, doing drugs, illegal activities of any kind. Sure, those are the big ones. But what about those little tiny ones? What about those ones that seem insignificant? Spending too much time on the couch watching Netflix. It doesn't seem like a sin, but it sure does lead us in a path of that. It opens the door for us to walk down that path. Being on social media all the time. Being on your phone all the time. Disconnecting from reality. What about allowing anxiety and depression to rule our lives? At some point, the anxiety and depression, even scientists would tell us this. Scientists and therapists alike would tell us this. At some point, the control of anxiety and depression on our lives moves from what it's capable of to something that we've created. That at times we allow the anxiety and depression that's within us to control our lives, not just be something that exists within us. And that's when we do the over-medication. And that's when we, we find ourselves in, in horrible thought patterns. The fact of the matter is we are enslaved to these things, chained up to them. And Jesus came to give his life. He left his heavenly throne. God becomes man, takes on a lesser form, So that way he could live a perfect life, a life that we could not live and die a death that we ultimately deserve to die because of those things that we're enslaved to. But then he defeats all of it by rising again and he kills Satan's sin and death. So no longer are there chains that are binding us to these things. But in fact, we are free. We are made free because of that payment. And now we owe everything to the one who freed us. But instead of that being rules and and laws and things to follow, all he requires in return is for us to fall to our knees and love him. He says, just love me. That's all I want from you. Just love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as you do that, you'll begin to love other people more because you'll see the love that I have for you and you'll want other people to experience that. And then you'll go and you'll make disciples of all nations underneath the wings of that love, letting people know that I have freed them also. That's the beauty of what Mark is trying to get to us with. He's the servant king. His kingdom isn't one of sitting on a throne and with his staff in his right hand and he calls in people to judge them and he points their staff at them and condemns them to death. That's not the point of his kingdom, nor is it to bark orders at an entire kingdom or to everyone in the kingdom to pay tribute to him by sacrificing all of their money and time and effort to celebrations and think, no, his kingdom is one of service first because he served us by sacrificing himself so that we would be free and have life in his name. How beautiful is that message? Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Digging In Podcast Lessons From series. Join us on our next episode as we close out the book of Mark with the final section, chapters 11 through 16.